Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and we're super excited today because we are bringing you another listener request. We are, and I'm so excited to hear this case. It's been a long time coming, but thanks to Heather for suggesting this one. It was a good challenge. Melissa has been working on this case for a long time. It's a crazy case, but totally worth the wait. And it's about to be the focus of a mini series called Under the Banner of Heaven that is due to come out this year. So after we listen to your case, we can look forward to the TV series. Yeah, I read the book that inspired the miniseries, and it's an interesting read. Yeah, I'm excited. And wasn't this actually filmed in Canada? Yeah, in Alberta. Oh, wow. Today, we're going to be discussing the two murders committed by Dan and Ron Lafferty, two brothers who believe that they were carrying out God's commandments. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the start of a cult killing. That's right. And we've talked about the importance of people's beliefs in regards to their motives before. Whether those beliefs are true or not doesn't really matter because to the people who believe them, those thoughts are real to them. Absolutely. We see that a lot. Mm -hmm. And today our discussion will take that concept to the extreme. What's the difference in beliefs and craziness, visions and delusions? Yikes. So on a four-acre farm west of Salem, Utah, Watson Lafferty Sr. and his wife Claudine had eight children just south of Provo, Utah. Watson supported his large brood by working as a chiropractor. He had previously served on an aircraft carrier in World War II as a barber, but now he operated a combination chiropractic practice beauty salon out of his home. Watson was described as a very individual individual and a strong-willed man. Wow. But to his children, he was just a dad that was strict about a lot of things, especially about keeping up the rules outlined by their religion. Hmm. He and Claudine were raising their family as Christians in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then more commonly known as the Mormon religion. It was expected that their children would conduct themselves in a respectable manner and be obedient to their parents. Watson and Claudine exposed their children to the belief that one should develop a personal relationship with God from an early age, and that family and the bonds created within a family were important. It was these beliefs that years later would be twisted and distorted until it barely resembled the belief that was originally taught. Wow. Because those are decent human being beliefs, right? To be respectful to your parents and be a good person. Mm-hmm. So where I- does it all go wrong? It does go wrong. Terribly wrong. According to neighbors, the Lafferty family had very strong convictions and were exemplary. Watson and Claudine were a lovely couple with their seven surviving children. Five sons and two daughters were very well behaved. But things aren't always as they seem from the outside. Watson expected exactness from his children and wife and was not hesitant to enforce the rules with the backside of his hand or worse when his family members stepped out of line. Dan Charles Lafferty, who is the fourth child of Watson and Claudine, was born on June 12, 1948, characterized his dad as the formidable disciplinarian who would not hesitate to beat the living tar out of his children or his wife. He once clubbed the family dog to death with a (gasps) baseball bat in front of his kids. No. Mm -hmm. What a dirt bag. Yeah. Apparently it was because he was enraged at his wife. Whoa. Mm -hmm. That's a special kind of evil. Yeah, I'm not sure what kind of point you're trying to prove there. Yeah. But he beat the family dog in front of his kids. Wanting to horrify them. Mm -hmm. 
When the family would file in quietly into the pews on Sunday and sit perfectly, no one was aware of their home life and why the children were so obedient. Oh, man. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. No. He would also deny his family access to medical care most of the time because of his general distrust in modern medicine. Instead, he trusted in the power of prayer and homeopathic treatments. At one point, one of his daughters was on the brink of death from a ruptured appendix before (gasps) he allowed her to be seen by a doctor. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. Watson, another one of the middle sons, would be more generous in his description of their father, saying that he was the product of the Great Depression and had lost his mom at the tender age of five from the influenza pandemic and therefore had not received a lot of nurturing himself. Dan would also say that for the most part, his childhood was idealistic and that his father made up for his shortcomings to his wife by being even more affectionate. What? So the boys kind of accepted their father's behavior. And tried to explain it away. Yeah. It was believed that his distrust in the medical profession was because his mom had died well under the care of a doctor. Oh, okay. And so this is how this one son described his distrust in the, in the medical field and why he wouldn't seek out medical treatment for them. Oh, okay. So the boys did actually defend their father quite a bit. Dan would say he loved his father intensely and admired him. And to this day, Dan considers him still a superb role model. Wow. By saying, I was blessed to be raised in a very special and happy home. Beating the children and your mom and -hmm. clubbing a dog to death in front of you to me is not a happy home. But that's just was their norm. And so that just goes to show you that that's what they believe to be okay and normal. That's so sad because it's not. No, (laughs) it's not okay, And it's not normal. No. But Dan was much more forgiving than his older brother, Ron. Ron Watson Lafferty was the oldest of the Lafferty clan, born November 4th, 1941. He would later say that he hated his father for the way that he treated his mother, and at times had wanted to kill him. He always felt responsible for caring for his mother and often became the target of his father's rage when he tried to protect her. Although his father's violent outbursts scarred all the Lafferty children to some degree, Ron suffered the greatest emotional damage from it, according to later assessments done by a prison psychologist. Wow, because he was the oldest and probably carried the brunt of it. Mm -hmm. Both Dan and Ron would say that Claudine was an exemplary wife and mother. She was obedient and took care of them well. In the family, all the brothers grew up very close to one another. Although Ron acted more like a parental figure, being older than the rest. And this is often the case in an abusive family where siblings band together. Mm -hmm. They learn to support each other and comfort each other. They have to. Mm Mm-hmm. Many in the community would report that all the boys were charmers. All of them had the gift of persuasion and could talk their way into or out of anything, especially Dan. Interesting. Was the father like that? Yeah. Through their youth, both Ron and Dan were model citizens and popular among their individual peer groups and appeared to thrive. While Ron had mediocre grades in school, he did excel as an athlete. He was a star player on the high school football team and captain of the wrestling squad. After graduating high school and completing a short time in the army, he served a two-year mission for his church in Georgia and Florida. And because of the art of persuasion he possessed and his sometimes obsessive personality, he was a very successful missionary. Hmm. Under all that success, though, Ron had a little bit of a rebellious streak. Nothing too crazy, but he did push back against authority figures over minor rules that were imposed, like not heading out to do chores when asked or refusing to wear a hat while on his mission. They weren't like huge rebellious streaks, but people would say that he did have this kind of pushback towards any authority figure. He would eventually toe the line, but he wasn't happy about having to follow authority. Right. Like he would do it unless you told him to do it and then he didn't want to do it. That's right. Uh. Mm Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. some ego getting in the way here. Well, I was more thinking that his defiance against authority figures could likely have been a way to actualize his dislike for his father's style of parenting. And to take some control over his own life. Yeah. Makes sense. Right? When he returned home, Ron met a sweet young nursing student, Diana, and fell in love. They were married and settled in Utah, so Ron could be close to his family. He was employed as a heavy equipment operator and made a decent living. By reports from his siblings found in the book Under the Banner of Heaven, Ron, quote, functioned as an emotional anchor for the greater Lafferty clan. His younger brothers and sisters had looked up to him for counseling and emotional support since they were small children. He intended to be the one who mediated family disagreements. One of Ron's siblings affectionately characterized him as the mother hen type. Aww. When Dan ran into some trouble with bullies as a youth, it was Ron who stepped in and beat them up for him. Aww. So like Ron was like the enforcer. Yeah. But he, he totally took on that oldest child role. Mm-hmm. Dan was six years younger than Ron and described himself as a 110 percenter, <laughs> always trying to do everything well. And then a little extra. <laughs> Sometimes I'm only a 10 percenter. <laughs> How do you get to be a 110 percenter? <laughs> Just kidding. But Dan would say, quote, Just to make sure I made it into the highest kingdom of glory. That was his pursuit. He always wanted to do everything with exactness. Dan, too, was popular as a youth and a charismatic charmer. The best one in the family. Huh. While Ron's rebellious streak was overt, Dan was a little bit more sneaky with his rebellious streak. He would not admit until later years that he too had pushed the boundaries that his parents set and hated to be confined to a particular order. Okay. Even though he's a 110%er. That's right. (laughs) During his youth, Dan said he always felt Ron's directing hand on his shoulder, keeping his zeal for life in check. So it seems like Ron's rebellious streak came out against authority figures. You can't tell me what to do. Right. But Dan's kind of little rebellious streak and nothing too terrible, but his rebellious streak came out because he just had this zeal for life. He just wanted to do everything and be in anything and and try everything. Do it and have it all. That's right. So I'm wondering where this is all going to go wrong, because right now it seems like the children are functioning, at least, amidst the horror that's going on in their home. Mm hmm. Dan would serve a mission in Scotland, and it was there he would be introduced to a divorced mother of two young girls. Dan was very impressed with this young mother, Matilda. Six years later, after she had moved to America, the two met again and were married within three months. Ooh, that's quick. It is. Both believed that it was God's will, and they had this whole little side story. I didn't put this in here, but Matilda had actually prayed about what she should be doing with her children. She was told to go to America and that she would meet her husband, and Dan prayed when he saw her, and then he actually went up to her and said, hey, I prayed that I should marry you. And she's like, oh yeah, I totally believe you. And so then they got married. (laughs) I feel like people can be led together, Yeah, definitely, (laughs) but you don't walk up to a girl and be like, hey, God told me, so now you gotta do it. That's not how it works, honey. (laughs) Even if that's how it works, that's not how you approach a woman. (laughs) No, but that's how he did. (laughs) Yeah. That just shows his confidence level too. Well, and his belief that that was the divine intervention that he had received. Yeah. After they married, Dan went into chiropractic studies in Los Angeles. He wanted to be like his dad. Mm -hmm. Remember, he admires his dad. That's true. During chiropractic school, Dan operated a home-based delicatessen, making natural sandwiches and selling them to other chiropractic students. Oh, It's how he supplemented his income because he was a student. Yeah, that's inventive. The government didn't think it was so inventive, though, because they (laughs) shut him down because it wasn't regulated and he wasn't paying taxes on what he was making. Yeah, there's some food safety laws for a reason. Yep. The health board shut him down, effectively cutting off the way he was supporting his family. Right, because he now has two stepchildren. Mm -hmm. Dan would later say, quote, 
it didn't seem right to me that the government would penalize me for just being ambitious and trying to support my family, that they would actually force me to go on welfare instead of simply letting me run my little business. It seemed so stupid, the worst kind of government intrusion. I don't think it's the worst kind, honey. (laughs) And you're not paying your taxes, which technically is like theft. That's like stealing. That's breaking a commandment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But this pushed Dan's views towards the anti-government movement and towards fundamentalism. Oh. After finishing chiropractic school, Dan and Matilda moved back to Utah County. Once back in Utah, Dan began to indulge in his anti-government sentiments and began extensively deep digging into polygamy after his interest was piqued through an acquaintance. Oh. In early 1980, Dan found some very old publications that had been published in 1842 entitled The Peacemaker that offered an elaborate biblical rationale for polygamy, which it proposed as a cure for the myriad of ills that plagued monogamous relationships and by extension, all of humankind. They said that part of the cure was making sure that women remained properly subservient as God intended. (laughs) Yeah. Dan connected with this idea. His studies led him further and further down the rabbit hole, and soon his attitudes and perceptions on family and religion had completely morphed. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So he's going off the rails. Yep. He began to believe that the fundamentalist movement of the Mormon church was more correct than the mainstream teachings. So a group that had branched off from Mm -hmm. the Mormon religion. That's right. And here's where we put in our disclaimer. Similar to what we said about Rockterio's version of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, Dan and later Ron's version of religion is their own and is not any form of the fundamentalist offshoots of the Mormon church and is even further from the mainstream Mormon church. Right. It's all their own. And as we go through the case, you'll see that both brothers would be excommunicated from all religious sects. Oh, they're all like, um, <laughs> nope, sorry, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> And so as we go through the case, there's ideas that they present as being religious ideas, but really they're all their own. It's the church of Dan Dan and and Ron. Ron. That's right. (laughs) It's their version of to their own liking. Right. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about them today. That's right. So Dan's fascination with fundamentalism would alter the course of his entire family and beyond all within a few short years. Oh, From here, the timeline gets a little messy as events happen simultaneously and we follow what happened in different brothers' lives. But I'll try to keep it all straight by following an individual fully and then I'll cover the same time period to cover another brother. But I think it helps to remember that all these things that are happening to the Lafferty brothers are all occurring at once and not in sequential order. I think it's one of the reasons that I struggled with this case so much is that when viewed in hindsight and in sequential order, it seems so easily preventable for someone to intervene or notice that things were going off the rails. But... I had to keep reminding myself that this is all happening at the same time in a short period of time of just a few years. And so it wouldn't have been as obvious to the participants involved. Right. It's harder to catch those red flags when it's all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So in 1981, Dan took over his father's chiropractic practice with his brother Mark when his parents left to serve a mission in Louisiana. This gave the two brothers time to have long, in-depth conversations on theology, and most importantly, according to Dan, quote, its power to remedy the insidious evils inflicted by the government on its citizens. Dan's other brothers would show up unexpectedly at times at the chiropractic office and join in the conversations, and serendipitously, the patient appointments would lull and give them time to talk. Dan interpreted this to mean that their conversations were of the utmost importance to God. Because they weren't being interrupted with patients? That's right. (laughs) Like God's keeping them away so we can continue talking about this. That's right. 
It's like, uh, maybe you're just a bad chiropractor and nobody <laughs> wants to come see you. But you can see how this mentality would just continue to egg them on, right? Mm-hmm. Ron, the eldest, was never present for these initial meetings where Dan would lead the discussion that weaved scripture into his arguments about the government having gone too far and exceeding its constitutional mandate. He preached to his brothers that the government was dangerously out of control with its control of the personal lives of its citizens. Dan challenged the right of the government to require any kind of license or to pay taxes, saying that it was just a way to control people and trick them into believing that they had to ask for permission to do things that God had already given them the right to do. So how does he think a country's going to pay for things? Like who's going to build your roads, Dan? Well, he <laughs> believed that having a social security number was a venue that the government used to oppress people. His growing disillusionment with the government spurred on his involvement with the fundamentalist sects. He began to believe that the church that he had belonged to his whole life had erred in their doctrine and had misinterpreted revelation. Then this is where psychologists would later point out that Dan had started to develop a narcissistic and grandiose ideas of his own importance. His self-directed studies had transformed him. He wanted to return to the true order of living the true commandments of God without the involvement of overreaching governments. Ooh, that's scary. Mm -hmm. To prove his convictions to his brothers, Dan, after seeking guidance through prayer, sent his driver's license back to the state of Utah, revoked his marriage license, and returned his social security card. He's just going to go off the grid. Mm -hmm. Like, nope, I'm not part of your country. Yeah. He ignored speed limits, which he believed were illegal, and simply drove wisely and carefully instead. He quit paying taxes of any kind, property taxes on his father's house, and business that he was charged to take care of, and even sales tax when he shopped at local stores, which you can guess did not go over well when he was checking out. Oh, what a nightmare he's becoming. Mm -hmm. In the summer of 1982, Dan declared himself a candidate for the sheriff in Utah County. You don't even have a social insurance <laughs> number, Dan. <laughs> I thought he wants to get away from like politics and government. So he wanted to enforce only laws that were doctrinally correct as he believed them to be. <laughs> and so he ran this whole campaign, speaking at public forums, writing letters in the newspaper and doing radio interviews and small town parades. <laughs> but isn't that a government job? Mm hmm. You're being a little hypocritical, Dan. Well, can you believe someone running for sheriff who didn't even follow the speed limits? And doesn't even have a driver's license? <laughs> <laughs> he could use his pedal bike, maybe. Well, it doesn't stop him from driving. He just doesn't feel the need to have a driver's license. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue if he became sheriff? Mm -mm. Not at all. But it just goes to show you how far his beliefs had taken him from being yeah. this perfectly law-abiding citizen to now he's like totally anti-government. On October 4th, 1982, he was pulled over by a Utah state trooper for speeding and not having registration stickers on his vehicles either. Dan believed the traffic stop was done on purpose to ruin his campaign for sheriff. <laughs> Dan told the trooper that he had no right to pull him over and refused to get out of the vehicle. After a short struggle through a slightly ajar driver's window, Dan took off with the trooper in hot pursuit. When the car chase came to an end and Dan was taken into custody, he was charged with second-degree felony escape, third-degree felony assault by a prisoner, and evading a police officer. Wow. He's just out of control. 
He represented himself in court until he was held in contempt because he continued to argue constitutional law despite the judge telling him numerous times that the level of court that he was in could not argue constitutional law. When this happened, he believed that the judge and court officers were in violation of the law and he attempted to put all the court officials under citizen's arrest. <gasps> he is just so unreasonable. He loudly proclaimed to the judge, in the name of Christ, do justice or be struck down. Oh. They're probably like, um, straight jacket people over here, please. He was sentenced to 35 days in jail. And right after he completed that, a 45-day psychiatric assessment. Yeah, I'd say so. After spending time in jail, his tax evading ways came to light. He believed that paying property taxes on a property that was owned outright confused the issue of ownership. Why would somebody pay the government for something that he already owned? Hmm. I agree. Get rid of property tax. <laughs> That's, That's a big expense. <laughs> there are a lot of taxes to pay. But just because we think that there's a lot of taxes and we don't like paying them doesn't mean that we have the right to not pay them. No, you're choosing to live in this country yeah. and you abide by its laws. By Dan's beliefs, by paying property taxes, you are basically telling the government that they're the ones who really own the property because you give them the right to take it away from you if you don't pay your taxes. He was pretty sly with his arguments because yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. It is true. <laughs> the incentive to keep the money for yourself, I'm sure, was a draw too, though. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he hadn't paid the property taxes on his dad's business and his dad's home while they were away. And so the property and all of its contents were seized and on the verge of being auctioned off when Watson Sr. learned of the problem with the taxes. <gasps> oh, yeah, I forgot they were serving a mission. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, no. The parents had to rush back to Provo, Utah to save their home and were furious with Dan and accused him of brainwashing his siblings. It was rumored that Watson even tried to perform an exorcism on Dan when he returned. <laughs> it's like the parents come home, they're grown adults, but it's like, I can't leave you kids alone for five minutes. They lost the family house. <laughs> and almost the family practice. Yeah. His parents' displeasure didn't dissuade Dan from his new passion for fundamentalism, though. At home, Dan had implemented the standards he had found in the 1800s publication on his growing family, Matilda, her two girls, and four of their own children that they had had. Matilda was no longer allowed to drive, handle money, or talk to anyone outside the family when Dan wasn't present. She had to wear a dress at all times. Oh, heck to the no, sir. Yep. He's going off a pamphlet from the 1800s. Oh. The children were pulled out of school and forbidden to play with other friends. Dan decreed that the family was to receive no outside medical care. He began treating them himself by means of prayer, fasting, and herbal remedies. In July 1983, when their fifth child was born, the little boy was delivered at home and Dan circumcised him himself. <gasps> oh, no. Mm -hmm. They don't teach that in chiropractic school. No. Mm-hmm. That's it, something you do not want to be messing around with either. Nope. Yikes. If his wife disobeyed, he would spank her. And it would often occur in front of the children or Dan's extended family members. <gasps> that is terrible. That's so degrading. Mm -hmm. Dan believed his family was his literal property. Because again, he's going off this 1800s pamphlet. He threatened Matilda that if she tried to leave, she would lose her children. Matilda would later say that she stayed for her children and that the first years had been extremely happy and hopeful in their relationship. But the relationship imploded to the point where she just wished Dan would die so that she could get away. Yeah. But she didn't see any other way out. Well, he's just getting more and more out of control. 
And you see that with so many women's experiences with domestic violence is that they just don't see another way out. And so they stay. And it's hard when there's children involved. Mm -hmm. Dan pulled his family off the grid. They grew what food they could and whatever they couldn't, they went and searched for in dumpsters. They just had to figure out a way to survive. Huh. It sounds like he is turning his family into like a little cult. Mm -hmm. His religious self-study continued and his fascination grew with polygamy. Dan declared that he planned to take a spiritual wife his oldest stepdaughter, a 14-year-old whom he was allegedly already sexually assaulting. Oh. So I couldn't find any like actual charges that were laid or statements made by somebody in the immediate family, but there were rumors that he was already sexually assaulting this 14-year-old. And then marries his stepdaughter. Well, he doesn't because at the last minute, he actually changes his mind and marries a Romanian immigrant named Anne, calling her his gypsy bride. Thought he didn't even believe in marriage. He had canceled his marriage license. Well, that's why he called it a spiritual wife. What a dirtbag. Dan at the time was also diving deep and deeper into obscure publications and interpreting every document he read literally. He became enamored with the idea that the laws of God took precedence over the laws of man. And he read about a blood atonement, which he interpreted to believe that sin could only be rectified if the sinners had their blood spilt upon the ground. (gasps) Oh, no. Mm -hmm. This is going to take a dark turn. You can just see how it builds. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Guys like this are so scary. And he's charismatic. Yeah. And so he's talking his other brothers into this. During the last months of 1982 through early 1983, his crusade became overtly religious. And Dan's three younger brothers became increasingly infected with his fundamentalist zeal. This didn't go over well with the brothers' wives, though. Family members started to express their concern for the changes that they were seeing in their husbands. Three of Dan's brothers attempted to impose the principles in their own homes. However, their wives refused. Yeah, no kidding. Mm -hmm. The sisters-in-law all complained to Diana, Ron's wife. At the time, Ron and Diana had been married for 16 and a half years and had six children together. And he's the one that everyone goes to for advice and for help. And to this point, he hasn't actually been participating in any of the discussions. He's been busy doing his own thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can see how his younger brothers would be like, oh, Dan got this gorgeous Romanian bride. We want that too. And so he's convinced them all that this is the real way. And he's very good at mixing pieces of scripture in with all of these other things that he's found. Yeah, just to benefit them to their liking. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're having money troubles? You know what would really help you? Not to pay your property taxes because the government doesn't deserve them anyway. You already own your property. Why would you pay taxes? And Yeah. So he makes these seemingly valid arguments. Now I'm going to switch over to Ron's timeline. So in the previous year, 1982, in Ron's life, he was the Highland City Councilman and a stalwart member of the local Mormon congregation, where he had been appointed first counselor to the bishop and was a leader of youth activities. By all accounts, he was a wonderful father to his six children, and he and Diana had a good marriage, envied by most of their acquaintances. Hmm. Sounds great so far. Mm -hmm. By mid-1982, it was apparent to Diana that several of Ron's siblings were in acute need of some brotherly guidance. She's like, fix your family, honey. (laughs) That's exactly what she did. Yeah. From reports of her extended family, four of the other five Lafferty wives were miserable, being made to live fundamentalist strictures that Dan had been urging his brothers to adopt. 
So Diana pleaded with Ron in August to go and have a talk with Dan and his younger brothers. Yeah. That's his role in the family. Right. right? Ron joined in in his first of his brother's religious discussions with the intent to persuade them of the error of their ways. Oh, are they going to persuade him? Within the space of a few hours, he was converted to Dan's (gasps) way of thinking. Within a few hours? Mm -hmm. One meeting. Oh, my lanta. Diana told a friend that when Ron returned home late that night, a totally different man walked in the door. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. That is some charisma. Dan was very charismatic. Within a couple of hours when he's going there to set his brothers straight because they're being dummies. Yeah. I think when we take into light what was happening in Ron's life, I think he was just at this prime time when Dan could work on him and convince him of all this. Because just prior to converting to Dan's views... Ron had been working long hours at a second job to flip a fourplex and was trying to build a new home for his family. He had financed both of his side projects against his family's current home. And prior to this meeting with his brothers, Ron was under a tremendous amount of financial strain and was emotionally starting to break down. To make things worse, there was a recession and so he was about to lose everything. In a short amount of time, Dana convinced him that his failures were because he was not living the true way God had intended. He would continue to struggle because he was following the wrong advice. And all the other brothers were there to back up Dan. Mm-hmm. Just like he had with his younger brothers, Dan wove his teachings intermixed with scriptures and historical documents with his own interpretations and convinced Ron that what he needed to do was to become a full-time believer and missionary for the fundamentalist views. So that's just what Ron did. Following Dan's example, Ron gave up his driver's license, did not register his vehicles, and quit his job. That is so bizarre and crazy to me. Mm -hmm. When he quit his job, his family could no longer make the loan payments for their projects. His family would lose everything and have to rely on the support of friends and family. Diana tried hard to pull Ron back from his depression and his new obsession with the fundamentalists, but it just continued to get worse and worse. Ron went from being a very clean-cut, well-groomed man to wearing long hair and having an unkept beard and having the appearance of a mountain man. He now expected Diana to live like her sister-in-laws. Who were miserable. Yep. When Ron began to talk about marrying off their teenage daughters into polygamous relationships, she gave up trying to save him and left with the help of friends and Brenda, Alan Lafferty's wife, the youngest brother. Who can blame her? I would be out that door so fast. Mm -hmm. So Brenda had joined the Lafferty clan on April 22nd, 1982, right after her graduation from BYU Department of Communications with a degree in journalism. She and Alan had met and fell in love quickly. She was the newest wife to join the Lafferty brothers. Brenda was the second of seven children raised by a school teacher and an agronomist. She was independent, aspirational, and described as having a Farrah Fawcett-type beauty. She had her sights set on being an anchorwoman on TV, but Alan wanted her to stay at home instead. From her journals, their arguments over the issue began almost immediately after they were married. Within about two months of marrying Alan, Brenda confided in her journal that she had felt that she had made a huge mistake. But by then, she was pregnant with the couple's first child. Oh no. It's hard to believe that this is happening in the 80s. Like this isn't in the 1800s. This was happening fairly modern day. Mm Mm-hmm. Alan's ideals weren't the only thing that came as a shock to Brenda after they were married. Because again, this is the 80s. She didn't think that anybody would have these views. He had a very successful tile business, but he insisted on always being paid in cash. He didn't believe in having a checking account because he didn't want the IRS to be able to trace his income. 
He didn't want to have a social security card either. In short, Alan had believed all that Dan had been sharing with his brothers. None of this had come out until after the two got married. So again, they were another couple that had this short relationship and she didn't really get exposed a lot to his actual views. She was swept off her feet as a young girl and she was bamboozled by him. Mm -hmm. The couple would fight about filing taxes and registering vehicles. Alan forbade it, but Brenda would go ahead and do it anyway. She believed in following the law, she told him. It wasn't long before Brenda's family was noticing and calling the Lafferty brothers fanatical. But her family had no idea how deep the troubles were for the newlyweds. Oh, no. Brenda refused to go along with the rules that the Lafferty brothers tried to impose on their wives. And she didn't hide it. She didn't want Alan hanging out with any of his brothers. And this made her a true outsider to the close-knit brothers because they felt that she was interrupting the family bonds. Yeah, they're like this little gang. Mm -hmm. A gang of dirtbags. When the couple's first daughter, Erica, was born in March 1983, Brenda was becoming increasingly nervous about the teachings that Alan was learning from his brothers. She even raised her concern to authorities at her church around the time of Erica's birth. Diana and Brenda lived close to one another and had learned to lean on each other. Brenda urged Diana to divorce Ron for her children's sake and for her own. By this time, both Dan and Ron had been excommunicated from the mainstream church for their views, and Brenda considered Ron way too far gone to be able to maintain a relationship with. But she was still hopeful for her own husband, who she still loved. But she was strongly encouraging Diana to be like, no, you need to leave now. It's funny that she could encourage her, but not herself. But she has a brand new baby at this time too, right? Yeah, and she's just brand new. It sounds like from her journals that she actually was planning on leaving. She was storing up money to okay. leave but she was also very strongly encouraging diana to leave i wonder why they didn't plan to leave together like we could help each other i don't know why that didn't happen right because mm-hmm. we could move out together one of us could stay home with the kids one of us could work like they could make it work they could help one another from the impressions i got from all the different reports it sounded like while she saw that diana was in a no-win situation brenda still wasn't quite there yet with her own relationship Sometimes it's easier to see in somebody else's. Yeah, rather than introspective on yourself. Makes sense. So summoning every ounce of courage she had, Diana followed Brenda's advice. The divorce was finalized in autumn of 1983. Around Thanksgiving, Diana packed up the kids and moved to Florida. So that shows just how much Ron believes what him and his brothers are doing. If he's going to allow his happy marriage of 16 years to just leave for his wife to walk out the door. Mm Mm-hmm. That shows just how much he's into this, how deep. Absolutely. But Ron was devastated. And fresh from his divorce, this is when Dan and Ron met Bob Crossfield, a self-proclaimed prophet that preferred to go by the name Onias. They were introduced by Bernard Brady, an acquaintance of the younger brother Watson. Bob Crossfield was the leader of a renegade polygamist group. Bernard had been impressed by Dan's nature and felt that he would be a good addition to the group of men that Onias was collecting. Onias had created a group called the School of Prophets, and what set him apart from the leaders of other polygamous sects was that he instructed his followers on how to receive divine revelation on their own. To belong to the school, it had to be revealed to Onias if someone was worthy or not. Both Dan and Ron started attending the group in Salem, Utah. This is just going to go from bad to worse, I can tell. Mm -hmm. By 1984, the Lafferty brothers, minus Alan, were meeting weekly at the School of the Prophets and promoting its teachings with pamphlets. Brenda would not allow Alan to attend. 
The other brothers were anointed by the new prophet on January 8th when he received a revelation that the Lafferty brothers were elect people. Six weeks after that, Anias received another revelation that Ron was to be made leader over another chapter of the school. And this appointment was just the thing to lift Ron's spirits. Yeah, because his wife has just left. Yeah, you take this man that's totally downtrodden and then all of a sudden you're telling him he's important he has this work to do he's actually vulnerable in that moment so he's easier to manipulate and to convince yeah in the last year his wife had left him his family had left him he had lost his house all of his possessions he had been excommunicated from the church of his youth and all of his beliefs he had adapted all of these new beliefs that his brother was pushing on him And now he was given all this promotion and feeling good. And so he just kept on building on those good feelings. Oh, no. Originally hurt by his losses, these new appointments made it clear to him that he was not the one to blame. And his hurt turned to rage. And his rage was directed at individuals that he felt had made Diana leave him. So he took no ownership whatsoever because he had been told that now he's this elect individual. He's not the one that's the problem. It's all of these other peoples that had tainted Diana against him. Oh, no. He's going to go after Brenda. Mm -hmm. Why can't he just take responsibility for his own actions? You blew it, buddy. But you can just see. And that's why I said about looking back. It it is so clear. You can see how this builds. But at the time, it was all happening intermixed. And so you can't fault them for not seeing it no. occur. And it gets worse. But their narcissism is just growing and growing and growing. And being fed by these other people that keep telling them that they're special and that they can receive revelation. Here, you're so great at this. I'm going to give you your own school of your own. And Yeah. And so having this third party come in is going to just reiterate their beliefs already mm-hmm. and further cement those ideologies. Yeah. And without anything left but the school of the prophets, it became his whole world. Ron became obsessed about it. And under Onias's teachings, he believed that he started to receive messages from God as well. So once Ron had a taste for receiving his own revelations, they started to come to him quite frequently. He would sit at Bernard's computer and wait for his fingers to feel like they were being pushed into the keyboard. The resulting message was deemed to be from God. Or a Ouija board, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like to me. I don't think that's coming from God, no. boyfriend. I think that's coming from down below. <laughs> His first message came on February 25th, 1984, then another and another. On the 27th, he produced this message for his ex-wife, Diana. And this is what it said. Thou art a chosen daughter, but my wrath is kindled against thee because of thy rebelliousness against thy husband. And I command thee to repent. Have I not said that it is not good for a man to be alone? I will not suffer my servant Ron to be alone much longer, for even now I am preparing someone to take thy place. Nevertheless, if thou wilt speedily repent, I will greatly bless thee and thy children. Otherwise, I will remove thee from thy place, for I will not suffer that thy children should suffer long because of thy disobedience. (gasps) I have heard the prayers of my son Ron, I know his desires, and it is only because of his desires that I have spared thee till now. Hearken on to my word, for the time is short. I am Alpha and Omega, even the beginning and the end, and surely I will fulfill all my promises unto my servant Ron. Even so, amen. Oh my goodness. That's like a death threat mingled with some scripture words. (laughs) 
That's right. But these are the kinds of revelations that he thinks he's receiving from God. That is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Imagine opening that up from your ex-husband who's gone off the rails. It would be terrifying. Yeah. But throughout the next six weeks, Ron received approximately 20 revelations. According to a later psychologist, these revelations were a way for Ron to reinvent himself into a different man and not to have to live with the pain of this devastating loss of his family. Because remember, family to him was everything. Yeah, and you screwed the pooch, honey. Yep. And remember, he had been taught from an early age that that was like his one of his core beliefs was that family was the most important thing. Family is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So you don't treat your wife like your property and you'll have a happy life. That's right. (laughs) Happy wife, happy life. Exactly. (laughs) There's a reason that's a saying. (laughs) Yeah. On February 28th, he received a message for Dan complimenting him for his obedience and telling him that there was a great work for him to do. When Ron shared this with Dan, he inspired Dan to do whatever was asked to him, according to Mark, their younger brother. Oh no, and Dan is just wanting all this recognition and power that he is going to eat this up. That's right. He was just been told, you're special. You're the one. You're going to do something great. Right. And my older brother, who's always led me and has been appointed leader of this area, is telling me that I'm next. On March 22nd, Ron showed Bernard what had been titled the Removal Revelation. It was the practice at the School of Prophets to pass a new revelation that was received in front of the whole group of people that attended the School of Prophets for their approval. And so Ron brings this new revelation that he's received to Bernard. And Bernard told him, this scares me to death. I don't want to have anything to do with anything like that. I think it's wrong. (laughs) When one crazy starts telling the other crazy that that's too crazy. (laughs) Maybe you're crazy. (laughs) That's right. He was probably not expecting that. No. And he was kind of taken aback. So neither Ron nor Bernard said anything about it to any of the other group members. (laughs) Bernard's probably like side eyeing him like, (laughs) sir. Sir, go get help. (laughs) This is not okay. Yeah. At the March 28th meeting... Ron and Dan weren't present at the meeting, but Watson, their younger brother, was. He shows up to the meeting with a pearl-handled straight razor and asks the rest of the group to bless it as an instrument to destroy the wicked. Like to punish people with? Mm-hmm. Because it's their blood that will help them to That's repent right. of their sins. Yeah. Oh, man. During the next week's meeting, on April 5th, Ron shows a copy of the removal revelation to all of the members at the school and asks them to confirm its validity. So is this the one that he showed Bernard and Bernard was like, um, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. So now he's gotten enough gumption to show it to everybody else. That's right. Wow. Especially after being turned down by Bernard. That's pretty brazen. He's just got more confident. Again, he's been building up and building up and thinking that he's important. He's been telling Dan that he's important, that he's about to do something fabulous. Ooh, so are you going to tell us what it says? Mm-hmm. This removal was written in Ron's handwriting on a legal sheet of yellow paper and was read to the group that night. It said this. Thus saith the Lord unto my servants, the prophets, it is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. For they have truly become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First, thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby, (gasps) then Chloe Law, and then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession And that an example be made of them in order that others might see the fate of those who fight against the true saints of God. And it is my will 
that this matter be taken care of as soon as possible, and I will prepare the way for my instrument to be delivered and instructions given unto my servant Todd. It is my will that he show greater care in his duties, for I have raised him up and prepared him for this important work. And he is not like unto my servant Porter Rockwell, and great blessings await him if he do my will. For I am thy Lord thy God, and have control over all things. Be still, and know that I am with thee. Even so, amen. I have so many questions after that one. (laughs) So why want to kill the baby? Well, we'll get into that. He gives an explanation for that later. Okay. And who are the other two people? The other two people are people that helped when Diana divorced him. Okay. So Brenda had encouraged her and told her that she needed to leave Ron. Chloe Lowe was a member of the women's organization and gave her a place to stay while she was preparing to leave Ron. And then Richard Stowe was actually the bishop of their church unit that secured the divorce okay he's just using god as a ruse for them to carry out his dirty work absolutely yeah he's just ticked off because his wife left him and Mm -hmm. he's crying like a little baby yep (laughs) it's time for him to get a spank and a thumping that's right but that happens in dad's house not rod's house (laughs) true but why brenda's baby because if she's evil the child's evil yeah oh that's the excuse he gives And why not Diana herself? Why is he not going after Diana? It's just everyone who helped her. Because he loves Diana. He's already given her a revelation to come back to him. Right. And they've led her astray. That's right. Oh, it's not her fault. Right. These other people are the, the evil ones. Oh, my goodness. After discussing this message received, a vote was held and six of the nine present voted against adopting the revelation as being true. Oh, that surprises me. The three to say it was a divine commandment, Ron, Dan, and Watson, the three Lafferty brothers that were present. And so Alan wasn't there. No, Alan's not allowed to go to the meetings because Brenda won't let him. Oh, right. It was Mark that actually wasn't at the meeting this time. Okay. So, of course, just the thickest thieves brothers. Mm-hmm. Bernard Brady actually was so worried about the proposed revelation that he had an affidavit drawn up four days later and had it notarized. So he wrote this whole thing out saying that how he had recommended it not be accepted as revelation and that he was against it. Unfortunately, his concern was just for himself. He never went to the police with the information. Instead, he filed it in a drawer to use to prove that he was blameless in the whole thing. So he knew it was going to happen. Didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily want to stop it, but just wanted to cover his own butt. That's right. Dirtbag decision, hey? Oh, yeah. Yep. I feel like that has to weigh on those other people. If they voted no, and they know that this is still going to take place, and they don't do anything about it, don't you have some kind of responsibility or blame then? You would think so. Yeah. And for the other people, maybe they just thought that these guys were totally off their rocker, that they weren't going to do anything about it, that it was all talk, and so they didn't believe it was going to happen, and maybe that's why they didn't do anything about it. Or maybe they believed that because the vote was no, the unanimous vote was no, that it couldn't Couldn't happen. have happened. But this guy actually believed enough that instead of going to the police and telling them about it, he covered his own butt. Oh, that's despicable, really. Mm-hmm. I feel like he is partly responsible then. For whatever happens. Absolutely. You're going to find out. There were several people that knew about this revelation and nobody warned Brenda. And it's so silly, too, of these Lafferty brothers and all these people. Well, the Lafferty brothers, for Ron in particular, to propose this, knowing that if police come up to him, he's got all these witnesses now that this was his plan. But remember, he totally believes that this is from God. And he feels like he's the chosen one and these are all his followers. Mm -hmm. And this is totally justified. Oh, 
Because remember, any government official, the police or anything like that, if they're not following God's laws, then what they impose doesn't mean anything. And if they are those officials in any form, then they're not following God's law in his opinion because they're not needed. That's right. What a tangled web we weave. So you can totally see how this builds through their anti-government movement, through all of their fighting against paying taxes or anything like this. All of this leads into their deluded mindset that this is all okay. And when you have just even one other person on board, I would assume it would make it that much easier to carry through. And they're going back and forth promoting each other's wild and crazy ideas now. Oh, no. So Dan would be the only person to alert anyone else about the contents of the message that Ron had claimed he received from God. He told his brother Alan about it. Oh, Brenda's husband. Alan was appalled by it and dumbstruck why his daughter would be targeted. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Dan explained that she would grow up to be just like her mother. Alan said that he would defend his wife and child with his life, but Alan never bothered to tell Brenda about his brother's declared intent to murder her or their baby. Yeah, because he feels like they're his property. She Mm -hmm. doesn't deserve that respect. So he never tells her about it. Yeah, I'm not surprised, to be honest. She doesn't know any of this. I mean, he totally should have. Like, Mm -hmm. I am surprised in the broad sense, but knowing what these brothers are like and what their beliefs are, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. He was the man and it's his business. Well, part of me also wonders if he actually believed his brothers would go through with it. Remember, these are your brothers that you've lived with your whole life. Right. They've taken care of you. He's the youngest one. Do you actually think that your brothers could go through with something so monstrous? Or do you also feel like he knows that his wife has a rebellious nature? Does he feel like if he tells her that's going to be what's going to push her to leave? Oh, maybe. And then he'll lose her too, like Ron had lost his wife? I don't know. But for whatever reason, Alan doesn't tell his wife. And Brenda's sister to this day still says that Alan betrayed his family by not telling them about the threat. And I 100% agree with her. Absolutely. He has some responsibility in that too. So again, we have another person that was fully aware and could have stopped it. If I knew that someone was planning to murder one of my family members and I did nothing about it, I don't go to the authorities, I don't warn them like nothing, then I allowed it to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. In May 1984, Ron and Dan left Utah in Ron's dilapidated green Impala station wagon and began an extended journey across the American West and into Canada, stopping along the way to call on various fundamentalist communities. Nobody in the School of Prophets heard from Dan or Ron throughout all of June and most of July. They just went off the grid. Wow. During this trip, the two brothers' bond grew even stronger. Dan noted later that they mostly talked about the removal revelation on their road trip, and that Ron seemed to be more and more obsessed about it, describing him as bloodthirsty. But after prayer, he determined that he needed to stick with his brother despite his growing uneasiness. This is Dan after the fact saying that, yeah, he was starting to grow uneasy about how Ron was obsessed about this removal revelation. And that says a lot if you're starting to freak Dan out, Mm -hmm. who has been kind of the ringleader of all this up until now. Yeah. As they continued their journey, they met a man, Ricky Knapp, in Wichita and they began experimenting with marijuana. Dan justified the drug, saying that it was a way of becoming like a child, and it was said in the scriptures that unless you become like a little child, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) He concluded that this scripture must be a secret reference to getting high. He's just twisting his scripture to mean whatever pleases him. That's right. He's just seeking whatever pleasure he wants. They picked up another hitchhiker along the way, Chip Carnes, a petty thief. While Dan and Ron were gone, Brenda was working up the nerve to leave Alan. 
Their relationship had become abusive and she was saving money to take Erica away. Her family wouldn't learn about how bad their relationship had become until after her death when they read about it in her journals. Oh no. So she doesn't even know that this is about to happen and she's has leaving in the works already. Yeah. Oh man. On the evening of July 23rd, 1984, Dan and Ron and their two new best friends stayed at their mother's house. Their father had passed away a year before from complications from untreated diabetes. Because remember, he didn't believe in modern medicine. Right. Which is unfortunate because you can live a long life with diabetes. That's right. If you treat it. So during this evening at their mom's house, they had originally been talking about attending an annual Pioneer Day Parade. But plans changed when Ron revealed to his little gang that God had revealed to him that the revelation would take place the next day. They spent the evening discussing the revelation in depth. Chip would later testify that the two brothers had a discussion about why the revelation was specific about the manner of death that had to occur. Ron was adamant that the throats must be slit. (gasps) Chip also testified that Claudine had been within what he assumed to be hearing distance during the whole time the death of her daughter-in-law and her grandchild were being discussed. But I can't imagine any grandmother not speaking out and saying something if she had actually heard the conversation, even if they were your sons. Would you not speak up? It's hard to say, but she had learned to be subservient to the man in her life. Mm -hmm. And maybe now that fell onto her sons as well. And so she heard the conversation too, never said anything. If that's true. I hope she didn't. I know. I can't imagine any grandmother not trying to protect their grandchild. Yeah. Even if she was subservient to her sons. For sure. But it was Chip's testimony at the trial that he believed that she could hear the whole conversation because she was in the same room. Hmm. The next morning, the foursome loaded the car with a 3030 Winchester and a 270 deer rifle and a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun that Dan had been impressed to saw the barrel off of that morning. They loaded all these guns into the Impala station wagon. When Chip asked why the baby had to die, Ron simply replied that she was the child of perdition and then added that it would be merciful because she would be without a mother anyway. What a creep. With a car loaded with guns, they drove off to Mark Lafferty's house to pick up another gun, a 12-gauge shotgun, and would subsequently return when they needed ammo later as well. While there, Mark asked his brothers what they were planning on doing. Ron replied, going hunting. Mark never raised any suspicions to anybody. They literally are going hunting. Uh So did Mark not know about the letter of removal? I couldn't find any references that he was there at any of those three meetings where it was discussed. And I couldn't find any reference that he had been privy to that. Okay. But knowing how close the brothers were, I find it hard to believe that, you know, when Dan and Ron took off, that Watson wouldn't say, hey, they've received this kind of revelation. Right. So I don't know if he knew or not, but if he did or if he didn't, he never raised any suspicions to anybody. Yeah, it's questionable. Mm Mm-hmm. After attempting to sight the guns with the wrong ammunition, they returned again to Mark's house and asked him if he had Ron's gun that matched the ammunition that they actually had. He told them no, but he believed that that gun was at Alan's house. Oh no. So he points them right in the direction of Alan's house. Dan and Ron, along with their two hitchhikers, made their way to Brenda and Alan's American Forks duplex on July 24th. The accounts of what happened next are largely based on Dan's recollections and his confessions. Originally, no one answered the door when they first knocked. Dan would later say that he initially felt relieved. That's your first instinct telling you that this is not right. When they don't answer the door and you feel relieved. You should go away, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
They even started to drive away. But then Dan says he felt drawn by the spirit to return again. Dan did? Mm-hmm. Oh. They arrived at the house again at 1.30 p.m. This time, Dan said he felt that it was him that had to knock on the door. Well, I'm chosen to do great things, so I must knock on the door. That's right. He was the one that was supposed to accomplish the task and that he felt comfortable with it. His comfort level had always been what he used to gauge if he was doing the right thing or not. Oh, no, you're just getting so desensitized and evil that you think it's okay. Mm-hmm. And how come these hitchhikers were so easily persuaded? I That's don't bizarre. Know. They are so bizarre. Why wouldn't they at any time just be like, no, man, I'm out. Yeah, Thanks. they have no loyalty to these people. No. Like, you just gave me a ride. I don't need to come and help murder people with you now. Yeah, it's all very strange. It is. So he walks up to the door and Brenda opens it. And he takes this as confirmation that, yes, he is the one that's chosen to do this because right. she opened the door to him. When Brenda opens the door, he asks about the gun and Brenda refuses him entry into her home, almost like she knew what was coming. Dan pushes his way into the house and a fight ensues. Dan pushes her head, shattering a mirror at the front entryway and tackles Brenda to the ground. He pushes her onto her stomach and has her arms crossed underneath of her, holding on to her wrists on either side. But she doesn't give up fighting or thrashing. From the car, the other three men listen to the battle. And Ron decides that he needs to go back up his brother. The struggle was fierce enough that it knocked paintings off the wall at the neighbor's side of the shared duplex wall. Oh, wow. And loud enough that those neighbors chose to leave their duplex without stepping in or calling the police. What? Mm -hmm. What happened to love thy neighbor? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But they're like, no, we're out. And they left. They just thought it was another argument going on at the house. And they didn't call the police or nothing. Nope. That's sad. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there are so many times when oh. so many people could have put their hand up and said, uh, this isn't right. That is frustrating. Mm-hmm. Once Ron was inside, he joined in on beating Brenda too. She started to plead for her life and her daughter's life. The men in the car could hear the hysterical baby Erica crying for her mummy and Brenda begging them to leave her baby alone. Dan asked for the knife that Ron had hidden in his boot and Ron tries to knock Brenda unconscious before her throat is cut. To do this, he repeatedly bashes her head against the floor, causing blood to spray up over the walls. He continued until his hands hurt and became so slippery from the blood that he (gasps) lost his grip. Brenda, somehow still conscious, tried to get away when his grip loosened. That's horrendous, Melissa. My goodness. She tried to fight her best. Oh, but two grown men against her? She didn't stand a chance. Not at all. According to Dan, Ron hesitated in the struggle and didn't move to stop Brenda as she fled, so he had to step in. Dan, in pursuit, grabbed her by her hair and ripped her back, knocking her unconscious. He then asked Ron to fetch something to tie around her neck. Ron handed him a cut electrical cord from a nearby vacuum. Once the cord was wrapped around her neck several times to make sure she wouldn't try and get away again, Dan went into baby Erica's room where she was screaming in her crib. According to him, she stopped crying when he entered the room. Because he's her uncle. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. This is so bad. It's believed that she stopped crying because he looked like her dad, Alan. They're brothers and they looked very similar and apparently their voices sounded very similar. He went straight over to her and cut her throat so deeply that it almost decapitated her. Oh, how could you do that to an innocent baby? But how could you do that to your own niece? Yeah, you are just the scum of the earth to be able to do that. 
Mm-hmm. He then returned to Brenda and removed the cord from her neck and killed her in the same way that he had killed her daughter. There is some discrepancy over which brother actually wielded the knife to kill Brenda. Chip later said that as they drove away, that it was Ron who said he did it, but Dan confessed to being the one to kill them both. Chip backed up his version of events by saying that after Ron had confessed to killing Brenda, he had turned to Dan and thanked him by saying, thank you, brother, for doing the baby because I don't think I had it in me. And Dan replied and said, it was no problem. (gasps) Dan would stick to his story, though, throughout all of the years throughout both of the trials that it was him that actually killed Brenda. But he did acknowledge that the conversation about Erica had taken place. Hmm. And I got the vibe from most of Dan's interviews that the way he told it was just his way of making himself feel more important in the story. Like he was always putting himself in the middle of the action and it almost seemed like he was trying to make himself seem more important and more central. That makes sense. So it is hard to say then. They're both responsible though. Absolutely. And I don't know why you would lie about that, but Well, for him, he wants the credit. Because it was his responsibility. Yeah. And he does make several claims that Ron wanted to leave. After they tied Erica up, Ron didn't want anything to do. He's like, let's leave now. And Dan was the one that wanted to finish. (sighs) And it's like, Ron, you're the one who wrote that letter. Mm -hmm. You're the one that started this and put these wheels in motion. Now you're wanting to duck out, but you've created a monster and you're your younger brother. Alan would return home later that evening at 9 p.m. to the most horrible scene and find both his wife and his daughter laying in pools of blood. Brenda had just celebrated her 24th birthday five days earlier, Mm. and Erica was only 15 months old and had just started to say her first words. Oh, my goodness. He had to have known it was his brother's. Can you imagine walking into your home and knowing, seeing that massacre and knowing that your brothers did this? An hour and a half after arriving at their brother's house, Dan and Ron were back in the car with their companions. Ron appeared shaken, but Dan said that he was calm because he felt like he had just completed God's task, at least the first part of the revelation. The green station wagon then moved to Chloe Lowe's house. She had been the next one mentioned in the removal revelation. Fortunately for Chloe... No one was at home when they arrived at her house. This didn't stop them from the men all breaking in and vandalizing and stealing items from her house. And can you imagine finding out later what was in store for you? Nope. Next, they were off to Richard Stowe's home. He had been the church leader that had helped Diana secure the divorce. And Ron had believed he had a part in his excommunication as well. After accidentally missing a turnoff to the Stowe residence, Dan and Ron decided to abandon trying to fulfill the rest of the revelation. They decided that God is satisfied with the work they've done so far that day and began to drive towards Wendover, where they would spend the night. The Stowe's actually had been home that day. Based on the questioning of Alan when he reports the murders to the police, Right away, they suspect Ron and Dan, and they start looking for the green station wagon. Police find the car on August 17th in Wyoming, where Chip and Ricky had driven it after stealing the car from Ron and Dan. (laughs) They quickly made a deal with the police and led the police to the bloody knife that they had discarded. If I knew these two dudes had just murdered a woman and a baby, I don't think I'd be stealing their car. I would not want to be crossing them. (laughs) No, but they all went to this one motel and they just left them there. Well, and even them going along with the murders just shows their character anyways. Right. And... The crazy thing was is that Ron and Dan fell asleep after committing these murders so deeply that these guys could get up and steal their car. Oh, they were tired. That was hard work. Yeah. That's disgusting. You should not be able to have a good night's sleep for the rest of your life. No. 
With the help of the two thieves, the Lafferty brothers were ultimately arrested in a buffet line at the Reno Casino the same day. They had fled to Reno and were living day by day off the charity of others. So they were begging and people were feeling sorry for them. If only they knew mm-hmm. what these men had just done. And why they were on the run. The brothers were charged with the commission of two capital felonies involving the deaths of Brenda and Erica Lafferty, aggravated burglary of the victim's home and the home of Chloe Lowe, and two counts each of conspiracy to commit first-degree homicide for Chloe Lowe and Richard Stowe. Originally, the two brothers were arraigned together. They actually even shared a cell for a short time until Ron started to viciously beat Dan. Really? I am shocked that they even allowed them to be in the same cell. Yeah, I don't know why that would happen in the first place, but... that should not be allowed. No, and it didn't last for very long because Ron started beating up on Dan. During the court proceedings, each of the brothers adopted the same way to deal with the authorities, a coy, elusive attitude, often refusing to answer questions in any useful, straightforward way. The judge had to enter pleas of not guilty on their behalf because neither Dan or Ron would speak to enter their pleas. They both had competency hearings prior to the trial dates being set. Both passed their competency evaluations. Ron actually had two evaluations done because of his violent outbursts while in jail. Wow. Well, they feel that all these people are just beneath them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've heard about how Dan reacted in his last court appearance. And it's just like the audacity. Mm -hmm. Like you have just murdered a baby and a woman. While awaiting trial, Ron claimed that he had received another revelation in December 1984. Can I insert an eye roll here? Big eye roll. Can we not be done with that now? This time, God wished for Dan to die. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. Because he's the one that can tell him all the story, right? Yeah. He shared this revelation with his brother. He's telling Dan that you have to die? Mm -hmm. Does he think Dan's going to kill himself? Nope, but Dan does agree. What? Yep. Dan says that he prayed about it and chose to submit to the revelation. The two brothers discussed how they would accomplish Dan's death, and they decide that Ron would strangle him with a tied towel through the bars of their adjacent cells. My mind is blown. So Dan submits, but for some reason, Ron stopped short of taking his brother's last breath. A few days later, Ron attempted to get Dan to submit again, but this time Dan refuses. Yeah, he's like, I've been there, done that, that hurts. Yeah, (laughs) so he wouldn't do it again. According to Dan, this is when Ron became really agitated and paced incessantly in his cell. On December 29th, Ron attempted to commit suicide in his cell by hanging himself with a towel. He was found without a heartbeat in his cell, but was brought back to life after a considerable effort. Wow. And remember, this is all before their trials begin. After that, the two trials were separated and the brothers were tied separately because of the delay to prosecute Ron. He was recovering from his attempted suicide. Dan was tried first. During the trial, he chose to represent himself. He hadn't learned from his past experiences that this was not the smartest move for him. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. I am not surprised. Dan was convicted of capital murder, among other charges, but avoided the death penalty when a single juror held out on his sentencing. Instead, he was sentenced to a life in prison. He was sent to the Utah State Prison in Dapper, Utah. For Ron, because of the possibility of organic brain damage from the suicide attempt, the four examiners who had made the second evaluation on his mental competency now conducted a third evaluation on Ron. On January 28, 1985, after hearing the testimony of Ron and the examiners, the trial judge found that Ron was incompetent to stand trial at that time. He had suffered memory loss and was having violent erratic outbursts. And they thought it was maybe due to the brain injuries that he had sustained from lack of oxygen. Hmm. 
But because his condition was improving over time, the door was left open to have another competency hearing in the future. And this hearing happened on March 19, 1985. Although there were some problems left over from his suicide attempt, they no longer thought that Ron was incompetent. And the examiners believed that he was just suffering from paranoia and therefore was incompetent. This ruling sparked a huge debate. Yeah. Because the question of Ron's competency was so intertwined with his religious beliefs, a judge made the argument that merely believing he was conversing with God did not make Ron incompetent. So they had said he was paranoid and he was constantly talking with God, and a judge came and said, no, 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 no. Just because somebody talks to God doesn't mean they're incompetent. Right. A judge even went as far to say that the First Amendment prohibits courts from determining the validity of religious beliefs. Okay. So it was a really, really tricky competency hearing. Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm -hmm. Based on this argument, Ron was again found competent to stand trial <laughs> because he was orientated to place and time and had an appreciation that the murder that he had committed was wrong and that he understood how to work with his lawyers. They felt that he could stand trial. That he felt justified by God to kill doesn't mean that he was mentally incompetent. Yeah, totally. I want him to be competent because I want him to go away. <laughs> you will be satisfied. Good. On April 24, 1985, Ron waived his right to counsel, wanting to represent himself like his brother had done. Because <laughs> that turned out so well for his brother. That's right. The judge agreed, but explained that he needed to ask him some questions to determine if he was knowing and intelligent enough to do so. Then when the judge proceeded with a line of questioning, Ron just kept answering no comment. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to do a great job there. Yeah. Because of this, he was not allowed to represent himself alone, but had lawyers alongside him. This would be the basis of one of his appeals later on. That I had to have lawyers with me? I was found guilty because I couldn't represent myself. You wouldn't allow me to represent myself. Oh my goodness. And so obviously still not taking responsibility for his actions. No. Nope. During his trial, Ron refused to take his lawyer's counsel to enter evidence that would support a manslaughter charge. Instead, he wanted only to be tried for first degree murder. And his defense was that he knew nothing about the murders. That his, doesn't even make sense. Yeah. I don't I don't understand his rationale. Yeah. He just felt that the case they were going to make against manslaughter was that he was deluded in thinking that he was being directed by God. And he didn't want that plea to be entered. Right. Yeah. I feel like he is so deluded that he's brainwashed himself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All of them have. Mm -hmm. Him and Dan. Trial jury was conducted from April 25th through May 7th of that year. And Ron was found guilty on all counts after only two and a half hours of deliberation. In closing arguments during the penalty phase of the case, the prosecutor contended he would kill again. He will murder. He will take another human life. The only thing between him and his next victim is you. Ron was sentenced to death after this statement. Yeah, that was some guilt trip in on the jury. Yeah. But it's true. And you would think that that's the end of the case, right? It's not? No. Because aren't appeals a great thing? Oh, because no. Because now that he has the death penalty, he gets access to so many appeals. Oh, do not tell me he got out. No, he doesn't get out. Okay. But he does get a retrial. I was about to flip this table. <laughs> no. His conviction does get overruled in 1991, and Ron is granted a second trial based on an appeal of the competency finding. It was believed that Ron's competency had not been accurately assessed because the courts had failed to take into account the dramatic differences in his testimony before and after his attempted suicide. And so the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the state trial court had applied the wrong standard to determine his competency. 
Hmm. Ron's convictions and sentences were vacated and he was charged again with the same crime. So they had to restart all over again. So with this trial again, the difficulty became in separating the man's beliefs and communicating with God as a religious practice from the delusional ones brought on by his diagnosed paranoia state. That would be tricky. Mm -hmm. In 1992, Ron's competency was tested again. And again, he was found unfit to stand trial and was pulled off of death row. Oh, no. And sent to a psychiatric hospital. And can you imagine the heartache that would cause Brenda's family? Yeah. That he's been convicted and now he's not convicted. Now he can't stand trial. And now we're going to pull him out of jail completely and send him to a psychiatric hospital. Yeah, that does not seem just. No. After 16 months of therapy, antidepressants, and antipsychotics, Ron was deemed fit to stand trial again in 1994. When the trial begins in March, Ron had so many physical and verbal outbursts, the judge ordered yet another competency hearing. Oh, come on. Yeah, they just could not decide if this guy was even competent to stand trial. But this is what he was doing during the trial. He was screaming profanities at the judge and even wore a sign that said exit only on his buttocks into the courthouse, (laughs) claiming that he feared angels were trying to enter him through his anus. Angels? Mm -hmm. Honey, angels don't want nothing to do with your anus. I'm sorry. (laughs) But those were the kinds of things that he was presenting at court. And so they're like, no, I'm sorry. You have to leave. Somebody go evaluate him. Are we sure this guy's actually competent? Is he trying to manipulate the system? Like, is he trying to act crazy? No, I think he actually 100% believes it. I wonder if the murder has caused some kind of psychotic break in him. Yeah, I think so. Or was it for the other inmates? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Exit only. (laughs) Interesting. So again, they sent him off for a competency hearing and he's found this time fit to stand trial. For a second time, a jury has to hear about the horrific way that Brenda and Erica died on July 24th, 1984, 12 years earlier. So it's taken them 12 years and now we're rehashing the whole thing over again. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And exposing a whole nother jury to all of those horrific details and traumatizing them, traumatizing the family. Yeah, more lawyers, the judge. Ron's defense team presented four expert witnesses, three psychiatrists and one psychologist, all testifying that while Ron might be deemed fit to stand trial, he was not in his right mind when the crimes were committed. They argued that Diana leaving him had caused Ron a total loss of self-esteem and self-image, which prompted him to compensate by creating a new but unreal view of himself in the world. The prosecution had four experts of their own, three psychologists and one psychiatrist. They argued that because Ron's beliefs were rooted in his doctrinal teachings and that there was a definite distinction between believing in religious beliefs even when they are atypical and not widely held and clinical delusion. The prosecution made several impactful analogies to demonstrate the difference between the two. Their overall argument was, quote, The existence of an extreme religious, personal, or political belief system is not, per se, an indication of mental illness. Right. One of the expert witnesses did say that Ron might suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, but this did not make him not responsible for the murders. It was just an explanation of why he was able to carry them out. But I feel like they're all overthinking it. Yep. (laughs) He's guilty. He needs to be put away. He knew what he was doing. He was not deluded when he did. Well, he is deluded, but do you know what I mean? He was in his right mind. 
He knew. Was he though? Well, okay. How do I say this? <laughs> I feel like he knew his actions were wrong. That's what I think it comes down to. Absolutely. Yeah. He knew his yeah. actions were wrong. Or why else would he have to justify it? And why did they go in hiding? If you don't believe your actions are wrong, you are not going to hide. And most people that have a psychotic break when they murder someone, they're actually sitting at the crime scene waiting for the police to arrive. Yeah. So that tells me guilt. They knew it was wrong. Yeah. Dan was brought in to testify for his brother during his second trial. And Dan's already served half his sentence. Mm -hmm. The two brothers met in the judge's chambers for the first time in 11 years. And it was a little awkward after their last encounter. And Dan now believed that Ron was possessed by an evil spirit and was out to kill him. So in the 11 years that they had been separated, they weren't in cahoots anymore together and discussing religious things all the time. Dan had come up with a theory of his own about what had happened to Ron. His years in prison had convinced him that there were signs of this position back when he and Ron had taken their road trip just prior to the murders. Huh. In the years since his trial, Dan had given up his elusive demeanor. He was all about telling the whole story and not sparing any details with no regard and no remorse for Brenda's family who were present in the courtroom for this trial. Well, and by him saying that his brother was possessed by a demon, that's still not taking responsibility. That's putting blame somewhere else. Grow the heck up and take responsibility for your actions. Oh, he never does. Brenda's poor father actually passed out during Dan's testimony because he became so overwhelmed with emotion. And Dan was so detailed in his account of what had taken place. That's horrible. On the stand, Dan attempts to take all of the credit for the murders. But the jury didn't believe it. On August 10th, 1996, another jury found Ron guilty after five hours of deliberation. He was sentenced on May 31st to the death penalty. He appeals his sentence and is granted a stay of execution and then proceeds to make numerous appeals all between 2001 and 2019. And this is all because he had the death penalty again. Right. I can understand now why it's so much more money to actually sentence somebody to death because they get so many appeals. Ron's appeals would keep the murder fresh in everybody's minds for a lot of years. Brenda's sister actually started to lobby against the death penalty because the appeal process is so hard on the victim's families. Oh, I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Dan, not one to be left out of the limelight for long and miss out on all the media attention that his brother's appeals were getting, claims that he caused a murder-suicide in Springfield of the Strack family in September 2014, while in prison serving his life sentence. What? Mm -hmm. Christy Strack allegedly had become infatuated with Dan after reading about him, and she and her husband Benjamin visited Dan regularly. Dan claims that he and Christy fell in love, and her husband was okay with it. He even sent Christy his waist-length hair, claiming to be the prophet Elijah. Though he knew no details of the tragic events that took place in the Strack home, he did claim credit for the murder-suicide that did take place in their home. I think that just goes to show how much Dan just wants the limelight. Yeah, mm-hmm. he'll say whatever he can. So, but back to Ron. Finally, on August 12, 2019, he's been told, you're out of appeals. Good. Your only choice left now is how you want to face the death penalty. And he chooses death by firing squad. But on November 11, 2019, Ron Lafferty actually died on death row in the Utah State Prison in Dapper of natural causes at age 78. Hmm. Brenda's family finally actually has some peace after years of appeals of him trying to get out of a sentence. Now they can be confident and know that Ron will not be leaving jail. Good. Dan Lafferty remains in Utah State Prison. He is ineligible for parole and will be there for the rest of his life. He still believes that he's the prophet Elijah. 
And he still believes that it was God's hand that directed him to kill his sister-in-law and his niece. He has no remorse whatsoever. <gasps> that's so bad. Mm -hmm. And that's the fanatical and unbelievable case of two dirtbag brothers and the pain they inflicted on their family members that chose to stand up to their beliefs. That's crazy. The religion of Lafferty is maybe not the way to go. Nope. <laughs> I've heard very minimal things about this case. And so you definitely dug deep and gave us the details. Well, and it'll be interesting when the miniseries comes out under the banner of heaven to see how they portray the events that took place. For sure. Because is it really factual or is it based on, you know, sometimes it's just based on actual events and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily following it. Yeah. So it will be interesting to watch. Maybe we'll have to get together and watch it. <laughs> we'll have to see it out. Well, thanks again, Heather, for that crazy suggestion. We really appreciate it. We do. And if anybody else has a suggestion for a case, let us know. Send us an email at buriedmotives at gmail.com or send us a Facebook or Instagram message. We do like to hear what you guys want to hear. We're always up to the challenge for our listeners to send us over a case. And we hope everybody joins us next week for Christy's next case. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. Testing, testing. In the family, all the brothers grew up. Grew, grew up. Grew up. It's time to glue up, yeah. everybody. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you dang kid. Can I do anything? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh, my stomach just growled. Did you hear that? Yep. It's not just my stomach, people. <laughs> Don, or Don, oh my goodness, Dan. You're still laughing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not. It's not funny, Christy. <laughs> it's my immature brain. Um, um, hold on. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so. <laughs> Ron, Dave, and Watson. Or sorry, Dave. Ron, oh man. I'm so Just confused. Just pick any my name. <laughs> Two capital Fennelies. Fennelies? Of two capital fennelies. Oh my goodness. I can't say it. <laughs> Aggravated burglary. Burglary. Fennelly. Burglary. 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 Fennelly. Burglary. Fennelly and burglary. <laughs> okay. Aggravated burglary. <laughs> can't say it. That is a hard word. Burglary. 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 Aggravated burglary. Burglary. There we go. I said it. And you were laughing. Burglary. 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 Aggravated burglary. Aggravated burglary. I'll get one out of there. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.